Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something, people. In New Jersey today, it is warm. Now, you know, I moved back from L.A. And it's funny, it's going to be 70 in New Jersey. But the whole time it's been cold this winter. And all my friends from L.A. have been sending me messages on Facebook saying, Oh, it's 80 in L.A. It's this. Well, today in L.A., it's 48, and all my friends are crying. People, 48 is not cold. Okay, a few weeks ago, it was minus 4 with a wind chill factor here. That's cold. When you sit there and you walk around with a sweater, a sweat jacket, and a jacket, a scarf, that's cold. So do me a favor, my East Coast, my West Coast friends. Shut up. It's not cold, and be happy. Anyway, we have a great show today, and I'm sure my, my guest, he's toured the world playing his music, has probably encountered some very cold weather in his life. My guest is Graham Parker. How you doing, Graham? Hello there, Steve. I'm doing all right. How are you, how are you mate? I'm doing great. Now, now, you've traveled. What is some of the coldest weather you've ran into in your years touring or just growing up? Uh, you know, I think I just avoided some of the coldest weather quite recently. Because in Winnipeg, playing in a festival in, in July, and where I was staying in a hotel, it was like the five corners or the six corners. And people told me that if you go out there in the winter, on some days your eyeballs can freeze. <laughs> so that's that's my best anecdote about cold weather. I, I'm lucky to be alive. I'm lucky to have eyeballs at the moment. But um, actually, the, the real cold is now, I think, back on it was... Probably 1976, first tour of America with Graham Parker and the Rumor, original outfit, and in a station wagon with the baggage tied on top, and getting out of the car in Minneapolis in the winter. I could imagine. I mean, it's just so crazy out here. Now, now you're going to be coming on tour uh, very soon. Um, what made you decide to come on tour Back in America, I mean, I know, and you're starting off in my home state of New Jersey. I know your first gig is in a uh, Bordentown, but what made you decide to come back on tour? When do you decide to tour? What, what, what is what calls you to the road? Well, I don't see it as being there being many breaks in it, and, and there hasn't been for for many years. Um, a lot of uh, acts that come from my sort of area of time uh, had long periods off in the nineties maybe the 80s, you know, when fashion changes and all that. Um, and I, I haven't really done that. If you, There's a page, a uh, web page, Struck by Lightning, and there's a list on there, my gig list. Some German guy puts this together. And every time I look at it, I cannot imagine that I've actually done that much live work and managed to make about, I think it's 25 studio albums in between. So uh, what, what's coming up for me now, starting in New Jersey, as you say, um, in Bordentown, lovely place, uh, it's pretty much just a continuing stream of work with uh, plenty of time off, but you know, not enough. But <laughs> there you go. So this is just another another thing. And this one is going to be solo. I've been touring lately as a duo. So always nice to keep changing this stuff up. Band, duo, solo. Now, now, what makes you decide to do something solo? Do you enjoy that? And how do your fans react to it? Because I'm sure, you know, everyone loves your music. I mean, when I brought up you're going to be on the show, everyone was like, oh, my God, you know, you know, a lot of me, I, I remember buying, squeezing out Sparks, riding my bike to the record store in New Jersey and getting that album and riding back on my bike, making sure I damn well didn't drop it. But when you do a solo tour, what makes you decide to do a solo tour? Um, well, 
it's nice not to lose money. Right. Yeah. That that's like maybe uh, <laughs> reason number one. No, not 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 exactly, but uh, it's <laughs> it's it's really not a, a very lucrative game if you take a six-piece band out, for instance. Um, and what happened with me is I started playing solo in 1989 for the first time professionally, uh, and it went went very well. And over the years, I've got so good at it that it's. Um, I, there were periods when I've been touring with a band and a few months later doing solo and have sold more solo tickets. Because a lot of people who have come to this know that it's a very different show. The entertainment value is different than with a band. Uh, obviously, I, I am the, the flexibility in what I do with the music, for one thing, is very important for people who are, really like my work a lot. And I don't mean who are just stuck in the 70s. I mean, people who have followed through. The flexibility that I have and uh, the jokes alone, they're worth coming for, mate. Now, you've, you've had a pretty fascinating career, but you, you got into the music business later. When you were younger, I mean, I, is it true that you saw like a, a, you dressed up like the Beatles or, or was that something that I read that wasn't true? Well, no, I, yeah, I, the Beatles and the Stones came along and, and basically we all know the story that the Kinks and all those bands that followed. And I was about 12 or 13 at the time. Um, and it seemed like a much more fun idea for the future than being a footballer, meaning a soccer player, which was you, in those days, the big star thing. And then the Beatles and the Stones came and it was like us 13 year olds felt like we had our own music. So we, yeah, definitely. I was guilty as charged as a Beatle cut and wearing a black polo neck and <laughs> black jeans with Cuban heels and having a pretend band. There's, there's a photo of it. It's, it's out and about there. Uh, we were just a dress-up band. We never learned to play because we were just a lazy bunks of, bunch of working-class oiks. We didn't give a damn, really. But it looked, it, it looked good, and we actually had a gig in the local village where, where children play, paid three pence, a threepenny bit, that is, to, to see us. I mean, we ripped them off royally, but they <laughs> some of them were screaming. <laughs> it, was, it was a great time, really, to be around at that age when those those acts came along. Um, so yeah, guilty as charged. I've done it, mate. Now, so now, when now, when did you start to decide you wanted to play music? I mean, I know you've had a lot of different odd jobs in your younger years, but when did you start learning a guitar? And when did you sit there and go, "This is what I want to do." Uh, well, it took me a while after being 13 and holding a guitar in my hand so I didn't bother to learn to play. Um, so when I got a record deal, I was 24. So a little bit of a gap there. Um, I think it was just uh, going through life and going into so many different styles of music. Music was always, I suppose, important and attractive to me from when I heard Bing Crosby on the radio as a kid and Danny Kaye and Doris Day and all those incredible people you know I, I knew that these people were good and they were making chills go down his spine now and again um so it's an early thing it's in your blood and, and uh, at some point i thought i'm wasting myself with doing all these menial jobs and all this stuff and traveling around you know doing the hippie thing and all that i thought that, that was good and it's a great learning experience but i thought there was something uh, going on inside me that um I was too lazy, uh, possibly too scared to look into. Yeah. And so I did look into it, and I found that I could, I could put things together on the guitar 
that I thought were uh, potentially okay. I mean, so it was about five years of concentrated trying to write songs before I finally cracked it and got what something I knew that was original and was really coming from me. Now, how did you how did you write your lyrics at that time, and how did you did you self taught your music? I'm guessing. How did you yeah. how did you do all that? Because it's pretty fascinating. I'm always fascinated when so many people I've talked to, so many musicians, a lot of them are, are self taught. But when you just picked up the guitar and you're you're not sure, you know, you're going to follow that passion, but then it's the music's in you. Did you start writing lyrics first, or did you start writing the music first? It's always been the guitar stimulates lyrics or a lyric in, uh, in my head that's, that's coming to me and forming stimulates the guitar, the, the chords. So it's there's absolute uh, you know, synchronicity between the two, and I'm still doing the same thing. I mean, I, I can write a song in, in, a, in driving a car sometimes, uh, but I don't know, you know, not completely, but get one idea, one idea, and get home to the guitar and try it, and sometimes... It's like, that's a real song. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's obvious to me. Forget it, you know, mistake. Uh, so it, it has to have both those things for me, guitar and voice. Now, you said you were 24 when you got that record deal. How did that happen? I mean, you were sitting there, you were teaching yourself. Were you playing any local gigs or were you sitting there and just, who found you? And how did that, how did that step happen that started this career that has been a very lengthy career for someone who actually started late i mean 24 is sort of late to start in the music business okay that old that old story let's <laughs> i always try and get it straight this bit uh it's very complicated but uh i put an advert in a in a music paper because i'd I, i'd written about three songs that i thought were great um this is a, a couple of years before i got a record deal so i was about i was probably about 20 uh, probably about 23 actually early early age of 23 i don't know 22 even and um i just met someone who liked what i was doing the the few songs that i got that were in absolutely the right direction and i knew it and uh he introduced me to someone else who introduced me to a guy named dave robinson who signed me as his man as my manager and uh he got uh, he recorded demos with me got one of them played on a london local radio show uh, and a record company guy from Phonogram uh, called up, and I got a record deal instantly. So there was no, um, there was nothing else. There was no playing gigs. There was no. I didn't have a band. Uh, this, this. Once the wheel started turning, it was almost instant. But it, it always takes years before that. But um, it didn't really surprise me. I thought someone would recognise that this music is good, and it'll be a record company guy. And it'll be a major record. Somehow it didn't surprise me, although it should have done. But anyway, that's that's pretty much how that started for me. Is it a little overwhelming when that happened to you? Because you knew you knew you were good. You know you had some great songs, but then all of a sudden you have this deal, and you're and you're you know you're not used to the record business. I mean, how does someone react to that? Uh, I think times were simpler then, for one thing. Uh, you didn't have to do it yourself online or anything like that. You got signed, they gave you some money. Suddenly you weren't working class anymore. You were middle class. And uh, and uh, then there was money to make a record and good, you know, gigs are coming to and uh, write-ups in the paper. So there wasn't too much time to examine it. I just thought, 
I, I had a schizophrenic feeling. I, was, I knew this would happen. And on the other hand, thinking, God, I'm really getting away with it, aren't I? <laughs> um, so I, I think that uh, sort of um, bipolar, but not in a, an uncomfortable way thing is typical with a lot of artists. We think we God one minute and know that we're faking it the next. <laughs> and, and that sort of, maybe that keeps you trying harder. So you when now what was it like once you had that deal and you started playing live? Did you really did you dig that feeling? And I mean, was it was did you know the stage was part of you? I mean, because you've still been playing live for all these years, so you must love it. But when those early gigs, what were they like? Did you feel the energy? Um, well, not at first because I'd never been on a stage in front of any kind of serious audience, even partway serious audience before. I played to a few friends and and played in a, a cafe, <laughs> an American hamburger cafe, with, usually with five customers at most, uh, early evenings. Uh, that was it. That was pretty much very little experience. So um, it took me a while to find my feet. Once I did, I started to realize I could own the stage and I should be uh, not waiting to see what the people think, but telling them what they think by being extremely good and extremely powerful and... Uh, extremely forceful um to a point of you know irateness really and i don't know where that came from but it just did it i think it's probably a lot of that intenseness and anger is probably covering up the vulnerability and the fact that i'm thinking i shouldn't be here <laughs> again how am i getting away with this uh so it, it creates an act sometimes that kind of feeling a normal human feeling of can i pull this off you know or the, the the fear an athlete gets when they go into the half pipe and they screw it all up you know the, the fear of screwing up is very powerful so let's be really really good and let's work a lot and practice a lot and uh, visualize a lot and uh, that's that's what eventually turned it into something i think now, how did you put your first band together? How did you put the rumor together? How did that happen, and how did you come up with the name? Um, well, actually, that's Dave Robinson. He knew these musicians in London, and I didn't know I didn't know them at all, and I didn't know about these bands that they came from. Nobody I, I know had heard of these bands. Uh, I mean, nobody, even friends in London. It was it was just. Not one of those things that was well known, but they were all so good, and we we uh, you know after a, after a bit of time started to click in, and it was quite a force by then. But the the band name came up because it was all a bit democratic. Some of us threw some band names into a hat, and then everyone or or something, and or the names were there on a piece of paper, and everybody put their vote into the name. Somehow the rumor came through as the winner. So. I just went along with it. It wasn't my idea, but there you go. Now, when did you start getting your recognition in America? And is that something, I mean, when you came over, was that, that must be, as an as a artist from England, is it, do you want to crack America before you crack? I mean, how does that work? Like, what what is your feeling? Like, do you, do you know that once you make it in America, you're going to be staying here a lot? Uh, well, my, that, that's not how coming to America, it was obvious that if you were going to do anything serious with your music, you need to go to other countries. And America, of course, is top of the list because much of the music that informs us in England comes from America. 
so it's it's obviously a very big part of the framework. But for me, I'd only just got a record deal, and it was 19. We're in 1975. Uh, we've done some gigs here and there, and then my manager's telling me your name's popping up in Rolling Stone and Village Voice. We've got to get get you over there now. There's going to be a lot of people copying you. We've got to get you over there now. It was like, oh, okay. Uh, he was my manager. I didn't know. What do I know? So the next thing, we're all getting visas and going to America um, and touring twice. You know, the station wagon tours of 1976. Uh, but it's, it, yeah, it took, took a, uh, we're very critically uh, favored quite quickly. And uh took a bit of a while until really the fourth album, Squeezing Out of Sparks, till we started to get an audience that was like, okay, this is it. This is re- very good. Um, and uh, America's been good to me. Thank you. It really has. Well, you know, it's, it's amazing because you were, you were before your time. And I'm just thinking about, you know, when you're in the station wagon touring across America, and, you know, I used to do stand-up comedy, and I know how the road is. And, and I did comedy in the late 80s and early 90s when the crowds yeah. were hipper. But I could just imagine, you know, you guys had a, you, you had, had a new sound. I could imagine if you pulled into, like, you know, Iowa. I, don't, I mean, what, what, what were the crowd, like, when you played some of these crowds, what were some of the reactions? Because you were a different sound. You were before, you know, Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello. How did some of these crowds react to you? Were they probably like, what, we like this, but what is it? Well, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very good point. They, they were mystified, really. There was this... Um, this sort of wave in the in the press of the, that, those kind of papers like the Village Voice and Rolling Stone, a bit of Greal Marcus was was very interested in in, in this band and uh, people like that. But that that doesn't really go outside of small circles, quite frankly. Even if the circles are a few million, that's small. So and strangely, we toured a lot in the South. We were on tour. We would, you know, I remember driving from Mississippi and Texas. This incredible heat and plagues of locusts and things, <laughs> and and playing in bars or clubs, the smallest places, because that's the only gigs you can get at first, obviously, without you know an instant hit record, and and yeah, it was weird. We we didn't get many takers, to be honest, and we were opening for people like uh, some blues. Our first gig was opening for Sonny Sherry Brownie McGee in Washington. And one member of the audience shouted, we came here to hear the blues. <laughs> so that's, that's our first gig. Uh, I thought, okay, these people are idiots. Uh, whatever, <laughs> just carry on. <laughs> and I really had a blast in actual fact. This is like I was working in a, a gas station and cleaning houses a very short time before this. And uh, now I've got people like Real Marcus wants to travel on, on the tour bus with us. By the time we got a tour bus instead of a, you know, the brutal, uh, one of those vans made of wood. They all sat in the back looking at the traffic, which made you feel as though you're going twice as fast. Uh, I, I know. I remember I remember the kid, as a kid growing up, driving on vacations, and you, you sit there and you're like, people don't understand. You know, there's such a glamorous thing of being a rock star. But I know it's like when you're on those tours, people don't understand. Most people haven't driven for that long. And it is one of the most boring and monotonous things. And this is when there was only AM radio in cars. So you really couldn't listen to anything. Yeah, well, what we had to listen to then by by, by the 70s, there was 
Yeah, it was more AM than anything. But when when we picked up FM, it was like you went from state to state and kept hearing the same music. <laughs> there was a, I, don't, I don't know if it was '76, but I remember, you know, there's, there's a couple of songs that just keep stick with you. Play that funky music, white boy. <laughs> And that was one of the better songs on FM radio. The other stuff was all this, you know, what was quickly becoming to me very outdated as it later became called corporate rock. And you had to hear that. And it was like the record company are desperate to break you in the Midwest. And you hear the radio and think, oh, not a chance. Not a chance, pal. What we play is probably incomprehensible to most people. It would be a cacophony. And when we when we started opening for big acts like Sticks, you know, we were opening for Kansas and Leonard Skinner, the audience thought we were like their parents. You know, we, our trousers were straight because it was like, come on, bell bottoms, that's like five years ago. And the audience looked like they were five years ago. They hadn't moved on. They were They were into this... Rock, hey, rock, you know, hands, there's velvet pantaloons flowing in the wind. And we come on and we're like this bunch of street urchins. We, some of us like me even have quite short hair. And I'm play, we're playing swing music. I mean, it, it was, their, their reactions were, I mean, 14,000 people saying, you know, F off English. <laughs> That's pretty, uh, I just thought, these people are idiots, whatever. <laughs> and we get to New York and it's like, oh, hold on a minute. There are people with some intelligence in this country. <laughs> it, is, it is it is crazy. You know, as I always say, there's the East Coast and the West Coast and then there's a bunch in the middle. And and I don't mean yeah, I don't mean that meanly. Chicago. Chicago's great, baby. Minneapolis, there's lots of good places. We we adopt Chicago and Minneapolis because they're hip and Madison, Wisconsin now is supposed to be hip. But uh yeah. so you're touring now now when 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 squeezing out sparks came out, did you know that was gonna break you? Did you know that was gonna be a big hit? Because that was that's I remember I still remember that album and WMMR in Philadelphia would play those songs and I remember as I said earlier I drove up on my bike and I, I got that damn album and I listened to it over and over did you know when you were writing those songs and when you're putting that album together that this is going to be something that breaks us in America no I would never know when writing the songs what I thought was I had some very weird songs that were uh, out of step with uh, my first album, for instance, Howling Wind, I mean, that's swing, blues, soul stuff. That's what that's about. And Heat Treatment follows on. And that Stick to Me was the third album was was sort of pointing towards something uh, a little bit out of step. And I think Squeezing Out Sparks is not my favorite record of mine. I, I actually prefer the, the more swing kind of grooves of music. That's more what I would listen to if I listen to music much these days, which isn't much. Uh, so it, it's... It, the songs are powerful in some strange way, um, but I feel I think of it as a bit of an anomaly. But we, you know, it was very good that it's sort of um, that after other new types of music that were closer to what I did were had may, had some success. That helped me with squeezing out sparks because you know four years ago it wouldn't have done anything. It would have been a mystery. If that had been ni early nineteen seventy. That had been my first album seventy six. It, it wouldn't have really made any headway. So in a way, coming before a lot of people who, who compared with me, at least finally helped me get an album that sort of crossed a few barriers. Um, and the touring we did then, 
it was just uh, you know, three months in America, four months, three months tours of U the United Kingdom, Europe, Japan, Australia came just a bit after that, actually, I think. But it, it was, well, I had actually been toured America before Squeezing Out, but, uh, Australia, I think. So it was, there was a whole mess of stuff going on, and it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty exciting time. I'm very glad of that. Now, did you notice the crowd's difference in reaction as they started to get to know you, from, as they got to know your music? Did you start really feeling an energy and a oneness with the crowds? Yes, because we'd arrive at places and the gigs were sold out in, in territories, as they call them, that we were nothing before. That, that uh, absolutely, it started to, to pick up in 1977, actually, with Stick to Me. Um, so you could see we're just playing theatres, in but in a, in a territory where there was absolutely nothing going on a year or so before, uh, and you find the gigs sold out or very healthily uh, attended. Um, so that that was a different, very different feeling. Yeah, it was good. Now, as you're as you're playing in through your career, I know you know in the Up Escalator, you ended up meeting uh, playing with Danny Federici. How did that happen? How did you end up meeting with him? Because he was an E Street band. Were they familiar with your music, or how does that happen? Like when you musicians play with someone who's in another band that's popular, is it like you guys are hanging out at a bar having a pint? And you say, "Hey, I want to play with you." Or how do you? How do musicians collaborate? It always amazes me in some of the collaborations you see. No, no, we definitely. Do. I don't think there's anything hanging out in the park bar to have a pint. We hate each other, basically, you know. <laughs> uh, so we wouldn't be doing that. But um, I know Bruce Springsteen. Honestly, what a supporter he's been from as soon as he heard my first album. He's been a great supporter and vocally so. Um, lovely, lovely man. And um, uh, coming back to New Jersey, New Jersey has always been very good for me. Uh, just playing solo over the years, sometimes there's been six or seven or more solo gigs just in New Jersey alone. Uh, so the, the, the support is fantastic. And um, so, uh, so I think with, with Springsteen, it was Jimmy Iovine. He produced the Up Escalator, for one thing, and invited... Bruce, who he knew from working on Born to Run, and Bruce, I think, was in New York at the time. I kept bumping into him outside a hotel all, all hours of the morning. We didn't have a beer. It was just like, oh, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, all right. Um, so he came along and did some backing vocals, and uh, Danny Federici was, I think he, he he's talking about the up escalators. Danny Federici was on that, I think. Right, yes. Yes, that's right, yeah. So um, we always had a link with people uh, uh, like that because the music's not the same, but it ain't that far away. And uh, people interact and respect each other's music when it's, you know, coming from very s sort of similar roots. Uh, so, the, again, the, the great support I've had. Now, the rumor broke up. Why, why did you guys break up? It's just something that you... You've been together. I've talked to a lot of bands that you just you go through so much and you're traveling so much that sometimes you just seem to need a break. Is that what happens a lot in the music business? Is that why bands, certain bands break up or is that why certain bands take a break? Like I know you came back later with the rumor, but how does what is it like when you break up as the band when you've been playing with these guys and you've you've came to some acclaim with them? Uh well, it's <laughs> I know there are stories about some bands who hate each other. It's almost fighting on stage, but that that wasn't us. 
we uh, we we got on very well, and we were in you know the tour buses thing, locked up in close proximity a lot of times, and uh, it's uh, we got on very well. But uh, for me, four years when I was that age, I was in my twenties, seemed like an eternity. Uh, it just seemed like an entire career. In fact. When I made my first album, I had no idea how long this would run. I thought it'd be great if I can get to three albums. I mean, that would be a huge body of work. You know, that kind of naivety at the beginning was there. And so going that far with one band, when I can always hear other accompaniment to my music, when I'm, when I'm writing, I can always hear different things. Going that far seemed a very long time. And to me, it was like, okay, this is... This has got to be done. So it was really my decision. And I just sprung it on everybody else. It was only years later that I realized I'd sort of almost devastated a few of the band members. They were like, what? They were shocked. And uh, and I, I was a bit uh, less explanatory in those days. It was more of a, sort of a grunt. You know, you'd sort of say, yeah, we're done. Now finished. Uh, whose amplifier is that? I was a bit brusque, I think. I didn't mean to be, I just didn't know how to express myself any other way, as you don't often when you're younger. So um, it might have been a bit difficult for them. For me, it was clear cut. It's like, I just want to hear some different music behind my songs. That's all I wanted to hear. And uh, I've continued with that ever since. And uh, one day, you know, 30 plus years later, for somehow, somehow or another, I asked two of the rumour to play to, what about playing on a new album I'm doing? And the next thing I know, a few jokes here and there, and it's the entire rumor. So I never expected that, but it was like it was so natural when we did it. Yeah, it was. It was great that we revived again. What was that like when you hit the stage again? Because you've all, as you said, you know, when we're younger, we don't know how to communicate as much. But you've all had these years behind you. You've all gotten better as musicians because, like anything, if you play over the years and years you're going to get better. I mean, unless there's something wrong with you. And so when, when you guys got back together again, did it, did it sink right away? And then how was your musicianship? How has it, how did it change? Yeah, I got, it was, I thought it synced right away when we started rehearsing for the uh, three chords, good album, the first reunited album. Uh, I, I think not everybody could make it to this rehearsal room. I booked there was only three of us at first, and it still sounded good. So I, I, mean, I, I had no doubts that they would be good and the songs would be good. Everything would be fine. And I was right. Um, and we, oh, the, the changes, the difference in the way people play, it's obviously not full of venom because <laughs> I wouldn't want that. At the, you know, in your 60s, it'd be like, Oh, let's try and copy my younger self. I've learned to sing very differently from those early days. It's uh, recognizable as me, of course, but it's very different. The band have learned to uh, continually add the nuances and subtleties that were there from the beginning, but weren't exploited because of my extremely uptight approach and intensity. Um, so thankfully, we, we were the same band, but we were different. And uh, it yeah, that's just amazing, amazing bunch of players, Steve. Incredible. Now you said your your singing has changed and developed over the years. How so? Like, is and is it something that subconsciously you've worked on, or is it just something as we get older, our voices change, or how has it changed when you when you hear yourself now? How has that changed? 
I think it started when I first played solo um, as a professional in, in 1989. Um, I was singing exactly the same as I would with the band then, which was all hard mid-range, very hard mid-range. The, the upper flake, sort of, uh, sort of feathery falsetto wasn't really developed, and the, the, the soft lower ends weren't, wasn't developed at all. I'd go on stage with the same attitude as I'm fronting a band, I must be in their face, don't talk much. But as the years went on, I realized that's not a very good act. That's a very poor act, actually. And I, I found that because of the singing solo, you can hear yourself so much better. You start to develop a style that, that fills out the, the PA system instead of being a hard mid-range thing. So that's what's, uh, that's, that happened to me very naturally. And at the same time, as you go on, you have to, it's best to accept. You don't have to accept, I suppose. Uh, I mean, you know, I think some heavy metal singers go to coaches so they can sound like they did when they were 20 and they're 60. Uh, to, to, to keep that screaming thing going, um, that to me will be extremely unnatural. Um, so, so you go along with the fact that you are aging continually as well as these developed skills that take time. Now, when you feel that your voice is changing and you're aging, does your writing style change in the fact that you cater it more to your voice now? I mean, I know lyrics are probably, I mean, your lyrics change as you get older, but do you have to sit there when you're writing a song and, and putting the guitar part down to say, you know what, my voice isn't going to hit that these, the, this time, but this is perfect for me? Yeah, the, the, the songs adjust to the voice a bit. The voice adjusts to the songs as well. That's still going on. I still find myself with a song sometimes that I think somebody with a really better set of vocal cords could do better than me, but I do it anyway. And other songs that I know, I am, I'm sunk into this like an old familiar bed. You know, it's... <clears throat> so the writing, I, I think, uh, does sort of roll around. Um... The, the voice uh, again otherwise it would be disappointing for me to find myself on stage pushing my voice into a place that it doesn't want to go it can go into different places now I think they're better I prefer them they're better places but um, so it, it, it I think it works hand in glove it's an org, it's an, an organic thing that happens without you quite knowing it so I think you've made a, a good point there thank you for making me think about that well Sometimes no problem. It's good. Now, Good, how, you know? now, how have your lyrics changed over the years? Like, I mean, you know, I mean, you've been writing songs for a long time and you, you, I mean, you know, you're critically, I mean, like the Mona Lisa's sister, different, you know, through your career, you've been critically acclaimed by, you know, Rolling Stone magazine loves you and stuff like that. How have you developed as a songwriter? And do you sit there and ever think that, you know what, I'm critically acclaimed, I better keep this level up, or do you just say, you know what, I'm writing this for me? How have you developed as a songwriter over the years? Um, well, I think there are some, I've got a new album in the bag actually recorded that nobody's heard yet, and I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it. Um, and uh, it's got off to a good start before it's even out. Judd Apatow put one on an H, one song on an HBO show called Crashing, and there's a show called Love on Netflix, which features one of these songs. So before the album was even finished or mixed or anything, uh, a few of them are successful. I'm wondering whether to even bother putting it out, actually. 
maybe I should. Yeah, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Just the unreleased album. That's because it's successful already. Because two of the songs have been used on TV shows. That's more than I'll ever sell. More than anybody. Ninety-five <laughs> percent of people will sell. So maybe I'll keep this album secret. But I can tell you, there's at least two songs on there that could have been on Howling Wind. Okay. That this my style, my template. It's like a blueprint that most writers have. And I've gone out on all kinds of tangents. And in certain times in my career, I've made a lot of studio albums, more than quite a lot of people, I suppose, who have been around that long. And um, those tangents are there, and they're always interesting and fun. But I still, uh, I, I think right now, I've, I've sunk nicely into this, this the deep swing stage that Howling Wind had in some of its tracks, like Lady Doctor and White Honey. Those tracks that, that I know people... Our fans really, really love uh, influencing me more than a song like Fool's Gold from Heat Treatment, which was the big 4-4 sort of rock, mid-tempo rocker. Um, I think I'm away from that at the moment. I'm definitely into this uh, sort of burning groove, which is, uh, it's always feels good to, to, to feel like that is good stuff, man. That's very good stuff. So, uh, as I said, I think the... I'm just bouncing off of it and sinking back into it a lot of the time. Now, how did you end up working with Judd Apatow? I know you're in one of his movies. Were, did you know of his work or did he come seeking you? Or how did that happen? Because it's like one of those random things. You know, it's like a Judd Apatow movie, Judd Apatow movie, and then there's Graham Parker. And then now Crashing, because I do watch Crashing. But how did you, how did you guys meet up and are, are you friendly or, or what happened how'd that come about because it's to me it's just it's it's random but it's cool well judd uh, as you as you can tell by the stuff he has on his movies and on soundtracks and whatever likes an awful lot of music and um he's one of the few people who you know have made it sort of clear he likes liked what i what i do even back before this is 40 and then actually acted on it. I thank him considerably for that because you know, you know, you meet film people and uh, people who, who play songs on adverts. Oh, Graham, I'm a huge fan. Oh, I've always loved your work. I'm like, well, do something about it, you bastard. And <laughs> and they don't. But good uh, judge was. Well, he had me on. He had Love Gets You Twisted from Squeezing Out Sparks on the Undeclared Show on the final episode with Ben Stiller. So that he'd already he had used my one of my songs, and um, this is forty was his I his he was thinking about who who could act as this character who could act as themselves and and be this character and 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 actually um, not try and not be scared of it not being scared of being an, an a, a a singer a musician that could bring a record label down by his deep unpopularity in his old age. <laughs> and um, somebody mentioned a Judd, you know, do, do you want to check? You should think about Graham Parker for whatever reason. It was in an interview. I mentioned Judd Apatow and how great his stuff is, you know. And so he got hold of me and we met. And uh, I, said, I said, I'm the man for the job. I can do this, you know, I think. And uh, so that's how that started. And then, then, uh, when I met him, I, I then dropped the bomb on him. I said, by the way, I just reformed the rumor, and I literally had a week, two weeks before they'd all agreed to come to New York and make a record with me. 
So, uh, so I said to him, well, you should get the rumor in this. And he did. <laughs> so these things, you can't, you cannot, um, you can't make this stuff up. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's just the, um, the vagaries of life as, as you flow through these, uh, coincidences happen and turn out to be something that feels like fate, but it's not, it's coincidences. Now, do, do, when, when you were in that movie, did you find that you found somewhat of a new fan base? Because, you know, we all sit there and we watch movies. Like, you know, you, know, you watch a TV show or you watch a movie and there's a song. And if you're not really familiar, but you know the artist, this happened on the last episode of uh, Ray Donovan. It was a, a, a Bowie song. You Google it and then you listen to it or you may go buy it. Did you notice that people, when they, younger people who go to see movies like that, find out who Grant Parker is, do they go now and explore your music? Well, I, I'm pretty sure that not one record of mine has been sold because of that movie. <laughs> I kind of take glee in that. It's, you know, how can I defy this even more? But the amazing thing is when somebody <clears throat> to, mentions to a younger person who I am, they, they go, he was, he was that dork in that movie that was ruining that record company. And, and they know who I am, and they look me up, and they're like, God, you've done all this as well. So, and, and, you know, I've been in England, and people say, I saw you last night on TV. They're not going to buy a record. People don't work like that anymore. They either steal it or, or Spotify or stream it, which means you don't get any money anyway. So... It's, but it's it's really interesting to see. There's three little kids. I'm in London here. Three little three little boys live next door, and and they found out through their parents that I'd been in, I was in a movie because they saw it was on, and they realised it was this old geezer next door, <laughs> and now they're totally intimidated by me. Their parents say they're really scared of you. It's like yes, success, power, fame among tiny children. <laughs> Now, besides being a, you know, in a movie and being uh, an amazing musician, you've written some books. When did you start getting the writing bug? I mean, because writing a song must be different than writing a book, but they both actually have a story. But you've done some, you know, short stories, and I believe you illustrate a science novella, science fiction novella. When did you find the, t when did you start doing that? Uh, well, I'm saying I'm You're cutting out, Graham. I'm sorry. You're, you're cutting out a little bit. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, you were cutting out a little. Did you did you go away from the phone, or are you still close to the phone? No, I'm right here. It, it, uh, the signal probably faded. You got me now, clearly. Yeah, I got you now. Yes, as I was, I was saying, I was always good at writing when I was at school, without having a great deal of academic knowledge of what I was doing, and um, so uh, uh, you know, a lot of energy into songwriting and touring still have energy left over. So I wrote this. Actually, before I got a record deal, I wrote a book called The Great House Mystery, which somebody illustrated and became a, a as you say, a novella. Uh, are you still picking me up clearly, Steve, yeah? Yeah, you're clear. You're good. Good. The side is working for us here. And, um, yeah, so then uh, in the 
1990s, I found myself with a bit of time here and there and started writing short stories. Some of them were two pages long. I realized, oh, oh nobody thinks that's any good. So I continued and wrote longer ones, and St. Martin's Press picked me up and, and put out um, Carp Fishing on Valium, short stories, which was 2001, and later there was uh, The Other Life of Brian. So uh, it seemed like, for a while, there seemed like this is what I want to do. I want to be a writer. Don't have to rhyme. You know what I'm saying? It's like this. It's easier, but it's infinitely harder because it's such a long arc and a long, a long pace to even a 20-page short story. So I think it was something I was slumming it, but I had an enormously uh, enjoyable time and, and a very testing time. Uh, I had to work quite hard, and I had a literary agent and the whole bit. It was it was going well for for a while. And it was good, but uh, I think. The songwriting kind of draws me back to my day job. Now, what kind? What was was it humorous or what was your writing? Was it tongue in cheek? Was it biting? I mean, because you know, you're a musician and the writing is different. But you 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 seem like a funny guy. You seem like a very affable guy. What was your writing? What were your short stories focused on? Because the title is just very funny. I mean, it's going to make someone laugh because it's just different. Were, were they comedy or what were they? Yes, it's all <laughs> alleged comedy. Um, the, in both of those uh, books, from the the the, the uh, Carp Fishing on Valley and short stories, and the other life of Brian, the, a novel, um, they 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 both uh, it's the same character, a guy named Brian Porker, and he's my alter ego. Um, he is a bit like the Basil Forty of the world. He's he's one of those. He's angry at everybody. Everybody actually gets right up his nose and every but everything when he tries to get his own back on it all falls apart and he's like Zelig in the uh, carp fishing on Valium he turns up as a comedian on the road he turns up as a, uh, a rock singer uh, Mick Jagger dies gets run over by a bus on the King's Road and he gets to be auditioned to be the singer of the Rolling Stones uh, or he works in a factory and um, it's just a guy in the suburbs working on a factory. It's always Brian Porker. So <laughs> I had the most fun writing it, and uh, I did a show based on it. Basically, you know, I'd read from the, the book and then do a song that I wrote for it, which actually came out as an album that I recorded on um, a Sony Walkman Pro and just put it out on the GrahamParker.net website called Carp Fishing on Valley and the Stories and the Songs. So it kept going for a while there. And some of those songs are, will still hold up to the light of day. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't exactly call it, you know, a serious political <laughs> or anything else book. A, a serious philosophical tones. <laughs> the, this is comedy. But it, it, I've, I've had a very varied life. So I've got all these experiences came out naturally when in the writing. That was the important part about it. And my dialogue is very good. Unless you're one of these people who can't make the effort to understand the English dialogue. Okay. Now, now, I want to go back to your tour. Your tour is coming up. What can people expect on this tour? When you, when you, you know, when you go out and play, because you've had, you've recorded so many albums and you have so many songs, how do you decide on your playlist? And now that it's solo, you know, do, do you, do you pick certain songs or do you sit there and do you know there are certain songs people expect? Or how are you going to formulate your playlist for this gig? Well, yes, and, and to, to add to the list, there's so many gigs as well. So um, these songs 
get forgotten completely. I've done, there are songs I've done, and I look back on old set lists, or somebody sends a, puts a set list online, and I go, wow, was I really doing that song? Um, especially solo. Uh, what happens is the songs open up dramatically in a solo setting. Um, so I, I try to choose songs that, that actually do that, not songs that are constrained by sticking to a beat. There again, over the years, I've learned how to not let the song be constrained by a beat when I'm playing solo. Some of them, however, have to. They really need to. You can slow down now and again and go somewhere else, but they need to rock like the record did, um, just on an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar. I'm taking two guitars, electric and acoustic, with me. So I'm, I'm definitely not uh, ignoring the past. I want people to have uh, some of their favorites and all kinds of songs from the mid mid-period and uh, a few brand new ones that they haven't heard yet as well. Now, the songs you play, are there some songs that people are going to be used to hearing it electric, but then you throw in a curveball there and you do it acoustic? Do you like to do that kind of stuff? Because for me, I love when I hear some songs, you know, by artists I like when it's, you know, you know the album version, but then you sit there and you hear an acoustic version and it's just beautiful and you're like, oh my God, and you're like, I like that song before, I even like it better now. Yeah, I do like to do that. There are some songs that uh, I, I I play on an electric guitar that were recorded on on acoustic. There's always you know there's a band playing and all that stuff. But my basic instrument would have been acoustic for the rhythm. So some of those actually work very differently and come out surprising uh, if you flip the guitar around and do a do a, a hard rocking song on an acoustic with it. It's you know open it up and and roll the notes and do a different thing on it. So, yeah, that, that's the kind of thing that keeps me uh, stimulated into, into getting out there and playing these shows, you know. Now, when you do the solo show, do you tell stories, or is it something where you get up there and you play, cause you, and you've written, and you said you've done that before with the uh, shooting Carbon Valium, where you told a story and played a song. When you're doing these solo shows, do you tell a few stories in between? Do you, do you humor the people? I mean, because I, I think nowadays, people have gained to really, everyone really enjoys that. Yeah, no, that, that's what I didn't know at first when I was getting on the solo kick in around 89, but uh, as I was saying, how that grows over time. Because you're free, not you're not stuck listening to the band and wondering about what they're doing and all the other extraneous things. When solo, you, you can only think about what you're doing and what the audience feel about it. And uh, it's always nice to uh, interact with with that. And, and I've... I've it, it is sometimes the jokes are, you know, <laughs> there, there, there's more jokes than songs. And so, okay, get on with the song, Parker. We get it. We, yeah, we laughed. Okay, stop. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's really good fun to express yourself in that solo way and make a few biting comments about certain things without turning into a political diatribe. That's don't do that. I don't. I wouldn't like to do that when I'm doing a show that features music. It's the music says it. So, but there's there's definitely a few things that you can throw in uh, that might be a serious subject, but but move it quickly. And jokes that pr probably the funnier jokes I, tell, I they go on too long. Um, but any, uh, the, the audience, I, ju I just see them when they come along with me. They they the people come up and say that was special. That's it's not. Rock and roll, here comes the next song, one, two, three. It's a special and different thing. 
Now, do you know what songs you'll encore with? And how do you decide if you're going to do one or two encores? I know some artists just say, you know, we do one encore. I talk to people who say we don't do encores. What's, what's, the, what's the philosophy of, what's the encore philosophy for musicians? Uh, I think it, for me, it's, it nearly always has been my tradition and with bands I've played with to do a three song encore. Uh, or sometimes when you're showing off a bit, you do two songs and walk off knowing you've got one more in the bag, you know, <laughs> the, the cover version or something that everybody will enjoy. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of that sort of uh, uh, show showbiz stuff involved. Um, when you're solo, from, it's generally, I'm going to come out and do three, three songs after I've played somewhere like an hour and 20, hour and a half. Uh, so it, it's, it makes it a pretty full show. I, I just find doing one is a bit cheesy, uh, but sometimes at time constraints, it's like in, in one of those things where you, you're on radio or something. You say, you got one more, that's it. But otherwise, on a show, when it's your own show, yeah, I'll, I'll do three even more if I'm near the end of a tour, feeling reckless, you know. Now, you have 10 dates uh, on your website. People go to his, uh, the website, grandparker.net. You can find all the information. You have 10 dates. Most of them are on the East Coast, and yet you have... One in Chicago, of course, and two down south. Do, do you really dig the East Coast? Because I moved back after years in L.A., and, and I really enjoy it. I, I miss, you know, the East Coast. I miss the people. I think, you know, it's some of the most real people. A little abrasive, but good-hearted. Do you love, do you, do you love the East Coast crowds? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, they, they've stuck more, more with me more than anyone, I think, uh, as well as those a few of those Midwest towns that we were mentioning, Chicago and Minneapolis and uh, they've stuck more with me, and that's why I get more bookings. You get more bookings because there's more demand. It's as simple as that. I, I don't choose where I play. I mean, if I was popular in Mississippi and Alabama, I guess that's where I'd be. It's it's a very simple equation. The market decides, not me. But I'm, at the same time, it's I go out and I know a lot of fate. I know a lot of people who have, they know their stuff. They've been with me for years. And they followed through with the solo work, and other people haven't. Some people haven't, and they come and hear me and say, "I haven't seen you since Squeezing Out Sparks, and I, that was a great show." Whatever you know, so I get, I get stuff like that, and uh, it's, it's, it's always good to to be in a part of the world that actually wants you. Otherwise, there's no gigs, basically. So you know, I'm gratified again. Now, when you see some a fan that comes up and you know has followed you through your whole career. How does that make it all worthwhile to you? I mean, how does that make you feel as a person that you've touched someone and they've followed you? And, you know, we have tons of different listening choices and it's great now because I have Amazon Prime. So if I want to hear an album by you, I can just yell to my Echo and say, hey, yeah. Grant, like yesterday I listened to uh, the Mona Lisa's sister. I can go, hey, Grant Parker, Mona Lisa's sister. And of course, they screw it up. She always screws it up. She goes, I can't find it. I'm like, it's right here on the app. You can find the damn thing. <laughs> But how does it how does it feel for you when you talk to someone who's followed your career? It just must be an amazing feeling. I mean, this must be it must make you very very happy. Uh, yeah, well, they're the, they're definitely the bread and butter of the artist who is who is not given up and just continues because he has to. Uh, so yeah, they they are absolutely the best, um, and uh, they're better than the ones who say, "I saw you in nineteen seventy nine." Oh, you're still doing it then. <laughs> it's like, well, what do you think I've been doing? What, what about, oh, I stopped and became a plumber. <laughs> oh, I was so rich, I stopped working and I'm, you know, living in the mansion, 
eating, you know, I'm 500 pounds in weight, you know, in a mansion, uh, just uh, people are feeding me. It's great. I don't know what they think I've been doing. It's very odd, really, when you get that. Um, so, uh, I think the people who have followed through and at least are aware that I, I continue, I'm the Energizer Bunny. Well, I was until about a year ago. <laughs> I'm 67 now, by the way. Yeah, but you're still so, torn, so I mean, hey, that's that's, and you look good, so you know, and you've yeah, if you well, I think Mick Jagger said a long time ago, if you still got the legs and the voice, you know, who's stopping you? Exactly. So, so I, you know, I play a bit, and still making records, and those people who are waiting for a new record, who want some obscure track they've never heard, uh, that's you know, primo. Thank you very much. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me, and I got to tell you, you know, I mean, as a guy who wears glasses. Back from the back from the day, you've always made glasses cool. Just so you know, <laughs> we always sat there and go, you know, hey, you, you know, and you wore them and you wore sunglasses and regular glasses, but you made glasses cool. So thank you for a guy who's worn glasses his whole life. But I, I want to thank you for coming on. Now, people, go to Graham's website, GrahamParker.net. You can find his tour dates. He starts in New Jersey and he has some dates in New York. He has some dates down south. And also, you can follow him on Twitter. It's it's Graham Parker. And now, do you tweet a lot? Uh, actually, I, I, I have a Facebook page devoted to me, but I've never dealt with it. I've never even signed in. I wouldn't know how to. Um, it's either a record company looks after it, or at the moment, John Howells, who runs GrahamParker.net, he, uh, he, he runs it and has I've got the keys to it. But I do Twitter because it's so great to get a short, sharp burst off. So you hear... Okay, gigs will be announced very soon, you know, and put a little symbol, solo, Graham Parker solo, and um, and on all those kind of things. So I, I like Twitter, so please join me on Twitter. Yeah, what is it? At, it, at, it's, it's, I think it's at, at it's, it's Graham Parker. Parker. So people follow him at It's Graham Parker. If you haven't listened to his music, you know what? Get get up and listen to his damn music because there's no you you have to and once you hear it you're gonna love it. So people follow him. Go to GrahamParker.net. Go to my website CooperTalk.net. I have over 670 episodes up there. You can email me Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Tell me who you want on the show. I'll try to get them. Also follow me on Twitter. That's at CooperTalk. Instagrams at CooperTalk1. That's a lot of food pictures because remember when I had that heart problem I wrote the cookbook. So buy my low sodium cookbook Stop the Salt. Go to StopTheSalt.com. 120 low-sodium recipes, no pictures to intimidate you, no long list of ingredients. Guys, if you don't know how to cook, get this. You'll cook. It's inexpensive, and you'll be healthy. So people, follow Graham Parker at It's Graham Parker. Go to GrahamParker.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>